I'm uh, pretty excited. I got my 3,000 my 3,000 subscriber uh, award. Oh my gosh, YouTube sent you that? Did yours get lost in the mail or something? My goodness, I'm, I'm still waiting for my uh, 21,000 subscriber plaque. It's a 3D printed plastic, I believe, you get at that point. <laughs> Maybe it's like different qualities of wood. I'm admiring that, like, is that? Kind of looks like uh, walnut, actually. Amazing. Probably worth five, six dollars. In this year's construction industry, we're talking that's that's some pretty serious coin. Ah, it's interesting that you would say uh, construction industry, Ute. It's almost like you've been looking into the cost of building housing recently. <gasps> oh, is this a transition? Segway complete. Ah, uh, yes, another beautiful artwork. L listen, I'm just getting jealous over here. You see my walls, it's sad. You can't have this one because it's a permanent prop, but uh, you know, this is a rotating fixture here. That's up for grabs? Yeah, okay. Okay, it would be great every time we record, you have to like put the painting that you don't like back up and then you're like, ugh. You know, you can't see that I don't have it up. It's right over there. It's, you just, you can't see it in the camera right now. Dude, it's on that wall. It's it's there with the other ones. I, I just uh, published a video on uh, housing. Like, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, I've found that when you delve into um, housing, you often find that the issues are fairly straightforward and simple. Everyone agrees. I should preface this by saying like anybody that wants to write, produce, create any kind of commentary piece on the housing crisis. You know, you're, you're either going to make a video that's going to be watched by almost nobody or you're going to make a video that pisses everybody off and hopefully you, you know, <laughs> land somewhere in the middle. I think like your video and the response it's gotten is, is crazily positive considering the territory you're treading in. Do you feel like that? Like reading through the comments or are you just screening out over shitty ones? Yeah, the response so far, I, surprisingly, you know, I think people uh, get it. I think there's like, you know, for me, like there's a, a bit of a blind spot in the video, uh, which maybe I should start sort of explaining a little bit. What the heck is a purpose-built rental? Why do we need more of these buildings? And can we really rent our way out of the, well, I guess you read the title already. Uh, it's about renting, how a lot of uh, municipal governments are prioritizing rental housing uh, as a solution of sorts to this housing crisis. And, you know, I wanted to do a video about that, sort of exploring, well, why would we want to build more rental housing? The question of like, do we want housing to be an investment for everyday people or do we want to treat it just simply as a service? Because when we first talked about the this video, um you know, and you were kind of trying to break it down, it seemed like your initial um, position was, does this work or not? I mean, maybe my answer is now shifted to like, it kind of works, but it's not like a definitive, yes, absolutely, this will get speculation out of the housing market. And, uh, uh, you know, before I forget, like Paige, uh, you know, uh, you were super helpful in just helping me sort out my thoughts on this topic. Uh, you, as well as my brother, who's an actual economist and sort of understands some of the more finer dynamics around the, you know, housing prices and whatnot. You've got a ringer in the family. You've got an economist that you can talk to. That would be 
so helpful for me. <laughs> in a family of Asians, like statistically speaking, you're likely to have like an economist in there and then a doctor. Yeah, is your brother like, well, you see the uh, I was incentivized to move towards this career. Psychology, no. History, you're, you're, you're disowned. But economics, okay, all right, we can, you know, it's not as good as, you know, dentistry but <laughs> social science still has science in the name so you know you got to be close to something that's real right to get back to your point the reason why municipal governments are prioritizing purpose-built rentals over a condominium you know renting over uh, an owned you know building is to cool the amount of speculation that's happening in the housing market having more people uh, rent means having more people uh, treating their housing as a service and not as an investment. Uh, if you build a condo, like all the people that are buying up the houses in, uh, in those buildings are treating this as a way to build their wealth. Whereas if you build a purpose-built rental, your rent is not an investment. You are spending your money, right? It's going out the door. The objective here on a super high level is getting more and more people to rent reduces the amount of people that are invested in the housing market and wanting it to grow and grow. What's the difference between um, a dentist? I always use dentist as the example of kind of like- Sure, dentist. My generic affluent upper class person. What's the difference between a dentist owning two condos or owning uh, $200,000 worth of shares in a REIT? That really opens up like this kind of tension in this story for me. There is not a whole lot of difference in my opinion. I mean, like if you think about it, a purpose-built rental is essentially a non-occupied condo for a really, really rich person that has the money to buy a whole building. Mm -hmm. I came into this video just thinking, okay, a condo is a building that is sold off to people that own. They construct the building and sell each unit to individual owners. That is a condominium. And a purpose-built rental, if they want to rent, however, they keep that building and rent out each unit to tenants. That is a purpose-built rental. Its purpose, the only reason it exists, is to be rented out. So I didn't even like understand that like a lot of condominium units are bought out by people that don't live in them, they rent them out and they become part of the rental market. To me, it's kind of a little bit like, <laughs> you say this nicely, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> that dentist is either going to go to the Toronto Stock Exchange and buy shares in a REIT, or they're going to buy a condo, which they can get because they've got the leverage. I mean, I guess an advantage of a purpose-built rental is that, in theory, someone who does only have $5,000 to their name can buy shares in a REIT, but they can't get a mortgage. REITs, or Real Estate Investment Trusts, were created by Congress in 1960 to give all Americans the opportunity to benefit from investing in income-producing real estate. Yeah, but um, usually you're probably going to be buying a portfolio across um, tech companies and things anyway if you're if you're investing smartly. It does feel like in some ways a bit of a label. The way someone described it to me was that like purpose-built rentals lend themselves more towards less speculative investors, whereas condominium units don't. At the end of the day, a purpose-built rental has to work out on paper, right? Like the rents have to cover the cost to build them uh, over a certain period of time. In the condominium market, it gets a little messier, right? Some people buy for sure to rent them out to other tenants and recoup their you know, investment through rents. But there are other investors in condos who buy with the assumption that the, the the price increase alone will cover their initial. So this is the issue with, with a commercial versus um, private mortgage, right? 
Right, right. The barrier is much, much higher. So when a REIT purchases a building, it has to work if they want to get financing for it. Whereas that dentist, he could buy a condo that has no rental income and the bank would okay him because that guy has a $250,000 a year income. So they don't even realize they're getting into hot water uh, when they purchase things. Those little differences, uh, I think uh, many could argue that they add up to you know a less speculative investment in the purpose-built rental industry. But for me, it's difficult to sort of really see a huge difference between the two. Like the way I describe it is like you can either rent from a landlord who owns a condo unit or you can rent from a landlord who owns a purpose-built rental building. Like from the perspective of a renter, uh, not a crazy amount changes. People will listen to this and really disagree with me as well. There's also arguments that like purpose-built rentals are more professionally managed, they, that they have much more security long-term. Like I've got a few things where I'm like, okay, in this situation, it is the best. I'm curious to hear them, yeah. It's excellent around um, university campuses or for worker housing in specific industry towns. For example, a university wants to create a kind of easy onboarding experience for international students that allows them to offer students a kind of convenient packaged experience for say their first year of university on campus so they don't have to worry about you know, cleaning the kitchen or, or whatever. There's a much more lucrative package, yeah. There's a lot to learn when you go out into the world. And so purpose-built rental in that situation can shine because it does the value adds that make your life a little easier. You know, a lot of people might assume that purpose-built rental is also like a cheaper form of rental than renting a condo or something like that. But that's like another sort of misconception that I kind of personally have to challenge for myself. Purpose-built rentals usually are adding services on top. I'm not going to go as far as saying like they are not are on average more expensive, but there are many, many cases where purpose-built rentals are more expensive than a comparable condo unit that is being rented out. Purpose-built rentals have uh, management and they have people that are you know, yeah, taking out the trash for you and all of these other services, right? One thing you can get a lot of the time with purpose-built rental, you can literally see a Google review of a building. It was very helpful in certain places I've lived, being able to say like, that building over there um, has got a bad rating, things, and then you'll see another building and it has a good rating. So it lets you, you wouldn't get that with a private landlord. And you know, I kind of appreciate you like being sort of a devil's advocate here too, because <laughs> I think there, there I, I don't want to like sort of, put out there that like, you know, it's it's wrong to build purpose-built rental housing. I think it's kind of interesting that municipalities are pushing that option a lot more now. There is a little bit of a disconnect between provincial and federal policy around housing and municipal policy around housing. Provincial and federal being, uh, we want as many people to own their own house and we're going to help people own their own house. We're going to support them. We're going to give them tax credits, tax cuts. We're going to give them literal grant money. Whereas the municipality's policy is much more, oh, we we don't want to give away too much housing. To, you know, We don't want to build too much. We want to maintain the character of our, our, our city. There's some more aesthetic values in there sometimes, partially also because historically, I don't think planners now are like, oh my gosh, like that. The, the most important thing is to protect the character. I think it's just that municipalities have a history of just placing a cap on housing supply. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of like, um, I guess like Joseph Stalin. <laughs> Let's bring him into this. One death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. For the provincial and federal government, we are statistics. But for the municipality, it is down at the street level. So like slamming in 500 units 
is going to cast a big shadow over all these existing houses and people are going to be real pissed about that. This is their biggest investment in their life and you just made it like shittier. Whereas to the Leds, it's just like, there are 37 million Canadians needing houses. We need 20,000 units a year. They don't have the same challenges and they're not elected for the same reasons. When people are pissed off about the, the, the condo going in across the road, they're like, dear city councillor, suck my dick, you know, um, or lick my clit, you know, it depends on, they've got a clit joke in there. <laughs> we, are, we appeal to both genders here. We're a small organization, Miss Spencer. We find that getting along with people is pretty important. Do you think you can do that? Lick my clit. Federal politicians and the provincial politicians seldom have to deal with the amount of heat about this topic that the municipalities have to deal with, right? Because like, I mean, Justin Trudeau is going to be like, dear, dear weirdo, um, not my job. Even if they are pulling the levers that would cause that change in that person's neighborhood, right? They, they control the, 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 the flood of housing demand, but like people are sort of getting like mad at like the, I don't know, the... the <laughs> okay, I my, I'm not good at analogies. I was thinking like the plug. This this was not this analogy was kind of doomed from the beginning. I'm sorry. I saw a video earlier this week of a dam bursting. I think this would really fit in well. I'm gonna put uh, some kinetic text over the top of the like water, and it's gonna say like federal government policy, and then like the little the little township will be labeled municipality. How do you feel about like the um, benefits to? just having a society that has a higher proportion of rental units. Like if you could change Vancouver and it's like 75% renters, would that, is that a better world to live in? I personally would think so, uh, but there are trade-offs with that. So uh, there's an example I bring up in the video. So the country of Germany has about 52% renters, but it's correlated to like a relatively stable housing market. Many economists have suggested that like there's sort of this uh, culture of renting in Germany has been a big reason for why the prices uh, were more stable. I think some will point out that like much more recently, Germany has seen housing prices spike up. I personally think that's like due to, uh, you know, recent waves of immigration and the housing supply not keeping up. At least in Berlin's case, it, I think uh, that may explain the recent uptick. One other thing is like the political dynamics change. Once you have a country that has a more majority of people renting, uh, Canada right now, we're approaching about 70% home ownership in the country. So you ask anybody uh, who owns a house if they're disappointed that housing prices are rising. That is, I think, uh, the core issue in this. Renters don't vote as much as owners. Um, renters are lower income than owners. And by having a society where you put those people in the minority, they're just going to get blasted from both sides. No one's going to stand up for them. No one's going to like fix the problem. The most disadvantaged members of your society getting the least government support. But you know, you kind of see like policy shift in areas where there are more renters, like it's a democracy, right? Like it listens to <laughs> who's in the majority. It's, it's kind of good. Like Montreal is obviously weird. I know a lot of people who are on six figure incomes here who rent and it's good to have that group of people that are renters include affluent people. The dentist in Montreal may be advocating for policy that benefits renters. And in doing so, they're helping to elevate the like issues that low-income people have. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of the... Um, the school segregation um, stuff in the US. Basically, there's lots and lots of things you can do to kind of improve the quality of a school. 
but nothing improves the quality of a school like dumping rich people into the school. <laughs> rich parents are very fussy and invested in the school and critical of things that aren't working for the students. They're like nerds about how the school is run and they're like on it with regards to advocating for the school and kind of like verifying the school is doing good things. And in the same way, like if you have a society where the rich people own the housing and the poor people rent it from them, it just exaggerates these existing divides. There are certain things where there is no way the government would want this to be how things work. You want your citizens to start businesses. You get any politician and they'll be like, yeah, we want our population to start businesses. 215 children were found buried at the former Kamloops residential school. You know, that's what we're all about. You're, hey, you know, you're a Canadian and you want to make a widget? Like, you make that widget. This is, that's the sort of country that Canada is. But what the government does with their, their approval for mortgages is make it so, so hard to purchase a house if you're an entrepreneur. And it's fucking so frustrating watching my, you know, and they'll be watching this, watching my lame, dorky nine to five friends who are just like, good job, work job for whole life. Watching them skyrocket past me in terms of financial success, I can get like the same income um, as them. But when I go to the bank and they're like, well, that was contract income. We need, we need someone to say that you get paid $80,000 a year and will do for the next five years. Like because the whole thing and the whole approval process is structured around like steady employment, what the government is saying to people is get a government job that you'll never get fired from and work in it for your entire life. Like that, that's the safest play for getting on the property ladder, which has got to be the opposite of what anyone in, in policy making circles would want your citizens to be thinking, right? I, mean, I totally feel you. Like, you know, if I show up to a bank being like, what's your employer? I'm like, YouTube. It comes in a nice cardboard box. I like that because you can recycle it. The employers that I had when I bought a house were not solvent employers. It's not like any employer in the world is just kind of like IBM. That's why I bring up the government employment thing because yeah, I mean, the, of all the employers, like that is the one that they're not going to fold and that you're not going to get fired. It's perverse. At one side of the mouth, the government says like, start businesses, take risks, be entrepreneurial. Policy that's enforced by things like universal healthcare, being able to say in Canada, for example, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to make YouTube videos. If I, if I have a heart attack or whatever, government's got my back. It's a great entrepreneurial advantage of living here. But then out the other side being like, you can't participate in the wealth creation mechanism that most people in our society use to get ahead. God, I hope your business works out. I hope you make fucking shitloads of money because that's the only way that you're going to get ahead. I think it's easy to forget that it's not just housing, right? Like ultimately housing costs impacts the, the cost of anything that requires land, right? Condos are just so wildly profitable that it will quash any other sort of like, you know, uh, development of like industry. And I think like that's, I mean, in broad strokes, like to some extent for me, I feel like there is something about, you know, a country that really prioritizes homeownership, it, it stops prioritizing like land being used for employment and for, for actual like, you know, uh, economic growth. How long is this going to go on for? It's been the story of our lifetimes, right? Like it feels like, like for you and me, it's just been ever present since like the mid nineties, this kind of like housing, it's getting expensive. Yeah, I think a lot of this issue is really acute in cities, 
especially cities where the geography is constrained and it's like really coastal areas, right? Or mountain, America. Yeah, mountains, right, right. Vancouver, you're talking about Vancouver AKA now? AKA Vancouver. Always making it about fucking Vancouver, you say. Uh, you know, uh, but I think, um, uh, uh, and, and the reason that it's gotten to the level that it has is actually, I, I think it's because of uh, the, the invention we call the condominium. We used to have like a pretty natural limit to like how much housing speculation would happen in a city because once you built above a couple of stories that had to be a purpose-built rental right so like the only way you could really own housing was like you know in more like suburban areas right to me like condos they were invented in like what like 1966 in bc you know in the 60s and other places i think we're gonna come to a point like where the, the future of a condo is kind of up in the air, I think, <laughs> you know? You, did you see that fucking condo that like collapsed in Florida? Yeah. I think when shit like that starts to happen and people realize, oh my God, these boxes that of investment in the sky that we purchased might not actually be that great of an investment in the long term. I, I think we're due for some kind of correction. I don't know. That's my thought. <laughs> I can't say that I agree because I mean, there, there's been kind of high density as an option existed um, starting in like the 19. I mean, honestly, like slums um, are some of the highest density neighborhoods in the world, and they existed in the in the like 17th century, right? So I assume people lived in crazy cramped conditions in existing city centers um, a long time ago, anyway. So then the like the the thing of being like, well, is this caused by speculation on the ability to purchase a land title skybox? You know, I don't think that's what's caused this. Something changed in the nineties, you know? Um, I think that people white flight finished off and millennials decided that they wanted to live in cities. And it caused a like spike in demand for a high density product that just has not been met um, by uh, the construction industry. I think can, that, I, can I give you my like... Please, I, I really want, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the thing that I've been thinking about the last, uh, the last few months is when will that supply be met and what's causing it to not be met? I think that as a society, we've done a very poor job of promoting how good the trades are as an occupation for people. Mm. People are being sent this message like, go to university and do a degree. It doesn't matter. University education is what's going to get you into the salary bracket. A lot of people are going to university and they're doing like marketing degrees or psychology degrees that are fucking low paid. When they finish university, they'll end up being like an administrative assistant or actually some entry-level job. Highly skilled tradesperson, that is a valid job and we need to stop looking down on people as a society who make that choice, like, oh, that's some sort of failure. That's a rational good choice. All the economic incentives are pushing people there, but we're doing such a shitty job of like letting kids know you don't have to go to university because that's what's that's actually where the constraint is usually. I mean, at the moment, like construction material costs are very high, but like there's a real shortage of those people and has been for a very long time now, you know? And that kind of being like the key limit to housing supply right now? The US right now is struggling because of the Trump era kind of policies. Um, they have had a shortage of 
low-skilled labor, that's put a strain on the industry because if you're like, my, my father is actually in construction, so like I kind of saw this firsthand, you know, you'll often have a builder and they're like assistant. If you don't have the low-skilled labor, then high-skilled labor is doing the low-skilled labor tasks. So the builder that you're paying a lot of money to is like dumping garbage uh, or whatever, carrying stuff around, you know. In Canada, I think we perpetually have this problem because our immigration policy is geared towards high-skilled immigrants. Right. We should be looking at the uh, immigration program and visas and being like, yeah, you know what, it's fine to give this dude from Nigeria a visa to have a job in construction. We almost need to treat construction workers the same way that we treat nurses, prioritizing that to get shit built. <laughs> we just need more. I think we need to prioritize them more than nurses to some extent. I mean, I think there are a lot of professions where there's appear, I mean, maybe not nurses, sorry, that, that, that might get me canceled. Get him alive if you can, but get him! But like, like I think like there's a lot of incentives for like, like people going into law and I've heard like law is a very saturated industry at this point. Like if you're very lucky to get good work coming out of law school right now. I mean, yeah, you know, this is, I really hadn't thought about this point before, but like, you know, you're right. Like if we're kind of looking for like, what are some of the blockages in the sort of supply chain of housing, for sure, I think labor would is a pretty key one and and, and I, I can see just like culturally, but even like, yeah, you're right, like from an immigration lens too, like we just don't prioritize people getting into that industry. Uh, maybe the solution is we, you know, those freaking 3D printed houses that people are like <laughs> making viral videos about. That's that's what we need. We just need a lot of freaking wallies just stacking, you know, blocks. <laughs> the magic solution that might come down the pipe, you know? Okay. I mean, what do you feel like, like, like zoning bylaws, like things like, like, or, 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 or government incentives to buy housing? Do you feel like, like those, like, don't play a role then? Or when it comes to like what people, what's being battered around in public, we're often one step behind what actually the issue is. Mm. Okay. For example, a lot of people in Montreal will still bring up like lot coverage and um, minimum parking requirements, you know. But those were eliminated in like Ville-Marie in uh, 2018, like the downtown area. I think that like the idea of kind of like increasing lot coverage, bumping up height, that stuff's all, it, it's kind of on the right track more, at least in Montreal. And now what we're dealing with is like, how do you make it so that um, developers and builders can address like the biggest thing on their list of like costs or uncontrolled factors and being like you might not have enough people to build this building you know just seems like a bigger concern at this point before you even like you know abolish zoning bylaws let's say you kind of have to make sure that there is a construction industry that can kind of absorb that extra construction I'd love to see those things abolished and simplified and stuff, but um, I think it's undeniable that there is a issue with the cost of building houses, even in the places that have like very loose regulations. I will point my, I'll be like, oh, well, yeah, there you go, this regulation, over-regulation, that's your issue. Um, but I, I think the truth is that there's... There are more upstream stuff. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things, I'm, I'm doing a video at the moment where I take an existing um, medium density um, apartment and I go through it with an architect and go like, what could you not build today? The thing that really sticks out when I look at this building, particularly the front, is there's really no barrier-free access to it whatsoever. I love that. <laughs> just made for you for me like i'm curious for your take on that at what point the, the, is there a correction like what causes the correction here <laughs> and this is my question back to you do you know anyone who's left vancouver since this crisis started to do remote work 
in a place with lower housing costs. Yes. And are they enjoying it? And do you think that they're going to stay there? Maybe in the short to midterm, but I think long term. They'll be back. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Millennials want that you know, uh, microbrewery. So those guys, like we all know those people, right? Who were like, uh, my place was really small and I can afford this. And so they did it, you know, and they moved. I'm just watching those, those pieces of anecdotal evidence um, to see how their lives work out. If 20, 30, 40 people that we know who are like downtown fucking hipsters bail out and head out to fucking Baltug Island or whatever, <laughs> a little Indian restaurant might open up there or a sushi shop that is within uh, range of their house. If this trend continues long enough, I think you do actually have the makings of the solution, which is like you have removed the land from really being a big factor. And now the catchment area for cities is so vast that you are just down to the cost of construction. I'd be, I'm very curious to see what, how this plays out. We are now definitely talking shop. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. If you had this experience um, of like, since the pandemic kind of eased, um, not socializing with people as much as you thought you would prior to. Yeah. I don't know if this is just me, but I, I've been a little bit like, oh, I thought I was going to be like, this is going to be the fucking greatest summer ever. And I was going to be just super social and hang I've heard similar things from other people too, is like, like productivity actually went quite a bit up for a lot of like colleagues that I know. Of, and they ended up taking on just like a lot more on their plate. I, I think that's like definitely part of it. Um, but also, yeah, I think like for me, the pandemic also really highlighted how many of my relationships beforehand were, I don't know, you know, we're just about sort of wanting to seem like I'm in some sort of cool group or whatnot. And I think coming out of it, like it's it's really just, it's all an act. It's all just like, oh, like, hey, you know that person, that's cool, yeah. Like During a pandemic, I was a lot more like, I'm urban guy, like urban things, yeah, the city. Coming out of the pandemic, I mean, I think maybe what needs to happen is a bar opens and I see my friends there and have that like night out. You really cut loose and then you walk home kind of not quite in a straight line. And you're like, this is why I live in a city. I couldn't drive you know, a car right now. That sounds that sounds very pleasant to me. I think like, uh, I don't know about you, but like for me, I think I'm very like susceptible to just developing quote unquote friendships, you know, just for like, I hate to say it, but like, like you know, as quasi networking, you know, endeavors. I think when you work as a freelancer, a lot of your friends and relationships kind of enter into this weird gray area where it's like, you're personally enjoy their company, but also there is some sort of anticipation of collaboration or work in the future. I, you would form some doubts of like, you know, whether I'm actually friends with someone because I like them or be, because we have the potential to work together on something in the future or that they might employ me in the future. I'm susceptible to that. And I think the pandemic quickly just like let me, allowed me to let go of all of that sort of stuff. When you're doing remote stuff, it makes it far more like task oriented. There is a lot less of that like um, incidental interaction stuff that kind of just like, hey man, what's up? You know, like that, the loose change equivalent of time, like the leftover minutes you have after a meeting ends and in between meetings where everyone's just like milling about and you're like, oh yeah, so how the kid done? Muffin conversations. <laughs> and it's like the muffins are out and it's like, oh, I like this muffin, oh, blah, blah, blah. How's the kids? Oh, they're doing good. 
da 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 da. They grow up so fast, don't they? And then like business. I've like definitely had some great experiences, sort of like walking in between two different meetings with like a friend after. And obviously the model that's being discussed is kind of this like three days in, two days out sort of a thing where like you... Yeah, is that what people are saying? Once society has accepted that the new reality is that people are going to get sick and die sometimes from a thing. Oh yeah, that's what normally happens. Oh, okay. This is what life is. Well, that's just... <laughs> but it's not like an unacceptably high number of grandmas die because they're all vaccinated. Like, I'm fascinated to know if there's going to be uh, people who live close to the office and go in five days a week. Will they get, like, a higher salary than the remote workers because they're getting to suck dick more? Is there, like, a networking advantage to face-to-face? And is it is it quantifiable? You know, I, I looked into this for a... Gosh, like, such a tangent of a CBC series I did. And... Is this the video series you did for CBC that was called, like... There was on pandemic changes, what was it called? <laughs> the non-pandemic, it's called the non-essentials. Okay, anyone else? Fun, snappy intro ideas? Uh, what about uh, Boltug Island? Oh, oh no, 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 you go. You go first. One of them was on offices. There is a lot of research on like sort of the benefits and disadvantages of offices, but none of them are good. Like none of them are like really statistically relevant samples. And like the one that's propped up and cited the most is this study that was done in China of a call center where uh, a significant amount of the workforce was allowed to work from home and they reported like something like a 15% productivity increase. And so everyone now was going around citing the study being like, oh yeah, like if you work from home, like your productivity increases by 15%. It was a call center. It's not like, like offices are completely different across the board. Office cultures are different. Like I'm not even gonna say that like, you know, this works for call centers even. Like there are probably some call centers where like it's much more important for, you know, teams to be like closely interfacing with each other. I actually think I know this study um i think it was c i think it was c china trip or c trip it was a travel agency they're like a cheapo air or like kayak in china there is a study out there that finds like a correlation between people working at the office finding more opportunities for advancing there are more paths towards promotions if you are running into your boss after work or during lunch yeah and like as a person who's like actually managed chinese staff in china that work culture is very, very different to Canada. You could be like, uh, hey, Paige, I've got 200 studies on um, work culture in China. And I'd be like, that's nice. It is not relevant to Canada. Totally. It would be like doing a survey on work culture in Saudi Arabia. And then you're like, you're missing an entire gender. And what is the industry? Like, is it marketing? Is it l- lawyers? Is it like, who, what is the kind of work that's being done? I went to the stock market today. I did a business. I'm always skeptical of any article or a commentator that says like, oh, like working at the office is going to be the better solution or working from home is going to be the better solution because between industries, between cultures, between individuals themselves, there is a different answer as to what works best for them. It's a negotiation that happens within each workplace based off of what the employees you know, want. The change now is that you will be able to apply and work in a job that is tailored to your preference. I do like that. Yeah. If the pandemic has done anything, it, it has really sort of hit the reset button on sort of being like, oh, like, of course you need like this beautiful office space with, you know, freaking shared tables and uh, like a slide. <laughs> I don't work anywhere that doesn't have a barista. Yeah, exactly. In the corner. Beer on tap. <laughs> if you were working at like video, at some video production house, what would you prefer? Someone that like 
just as like managing and organizing all my files. You want IT? I think the good coffee. I'll take that. So you would want an office. You would want a location. Yes. Yeah. For me personally, like I suck at working by myself. Like right now, like this place that I'm working in right now, I mean, it's my room. It's depressing often. <laughs> and I'm struggling to find the motivation to like really enjoy my work because I'm just like reading articles and like not actually like going out to places and meeting people. So prior to the pandemic, did you spend a lot of time kind of lugging your laptop down to coffee shop to just, just to kind of brighten things up? Uh, so prior to the pandemic, I actually uh, had a co-working space. I, I uh, rented oh. in the, the downtown east side. Did you sit down at the desk and kind of brush the needles away and then... The desk itself was needleless. Is the, the commute that was <laughs> maybe you had to dodge some here and there. And that was just you being like, for my mental health, it's good to go somewhere to work. Yeah, just separating the work from your life. If you could have had a co-working space that was like across the road. Oh, for the same price? Yes. It was all, it was about price. It was price. I got a really good deal on it. This is a thing, right? Like I bike to work. If I could choose an optimal distance, it would be about 20 minutes bike away just because it forces this kind of like uh, exercise. I, I've wondered often if there's an optimal commute, which is not literally walking from your bed to your desk. It's like, where is that line? Someone's looked into that. From their study, it was about 16 or 17 minutes. So you're you're not far off with a 20 minute figure. <laughs> That's exactly how far my office was. It's funny because like, yeah, part of that study was like also surveying people that had really short commutes, like five minute commutes. And like they found like, yeah, like shorter commutes, like people aren't as satisfied with that for some reason. Not too surprising. There's something nice about like, for example, not being able to physically see your office when you're at home. I mean, <laughs> yep. that, that I think is somewhat of a sign. I, like I think we work as as bad of a rap that it got before the pandemic. I, I think it was serving a, a, a need for a lot of freelancers that just didn't want their workstation to be next to their bedroom. Like especially if you have like a studio apartment, having your like like your editing desk and everything like that right, you know, in the same room that you're sleeping and cooking. Mm. This is what I'm saying is like, it's actually like, it could be different for a lot of people. Like some people might actually fucking love that. Like I was uh, basically freelance self-employed for like 10 years and now I am again, you know, so majority of my life I've been in that situation. I think it's the same for you. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed so much when I had the job having an office. I didn't take that shit for granted at all. Like the free coffee, the little events, the beer fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. I was like, this is great. And the coworkers were like, oh man, I hate the open plan office. I da 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 da. And I was always just like, guys, like, you don't understand. The company doesn't have to spend this money on you for a thing which you get to have. And that's, it's so nice yeah. to punch the card and like go home after work and be like, I work at work and I don't when I'm not and all this stuff. Like, they don't have to spend that money on you. Like, it's a cost for them. You're getting that shit for free. I, I know, like, when it feels forced, it's like you have to come into the office. That's when it becomes maybe a different relationship. But, like, for me, like, because I always chose and I, like, paid, not only did I want to get my money's worth, like, I, like, I genuinely appreciated that, like, this is something that, like, it is a service for me, you know? And I found a lot of modern employers like at least to put the, the company I was employed by, they were okay with me coming in at like 11. I would work on weekends and come in late and, and stuff. Like I'd always do my 40 hours, but they were, you know, like I had meetings. I would always be there for a meeting, you know. It was basically just kind of like um, a work mindset space. That's fantastic. People's reaction at the start of the pandemic to being able to work from home was so positive. 
You know, they're like, ah, oh, this is awesome. Hun, are you ready for some math problems? Uh, not right this second, mother. Put them there by the door. Oh, all right. Mm. Yes, hun? Could you turn up the heat just a little? Sure, hun. <sighs> Dude, homeschooling rules. It reminded me a little bit of, like, uh, the airline industry's transition to budget airlines. The travail has been taken out of travel. Where people now bemoan the days, you know, oh man, I cannot believe how awesome, like, you look at all that space that people had, and it was like first class the whole way, and now we're all like, Thank you for fucking up our flight! It's miserable. Yeah, now everyone has to pay for their own office space in their house. Right. Like, I think that there's going to be a day where a lot of people go like, remember those days where your employer used to pay for you to have a printer and a space to work out I of? I think even the employers themselves don't really want to not have an office. But I think it is like, you know, we've just hit the hard reset button. Like, we're just sort of figuring out how the pieces land here. So anyways. <laughs> Your um, footage stylistically is unusual and you know what you're doing. So it, it seems intentional. Have you, do you apply a lot? I do, but it's a very light one. I, I think in the past I've gone a bit harder on the LUTs uh, and I just found like it, my, my skin would turn orange and like the sky would turn green. I'd be like, like I can't, I can't bother with that. Like, let me just put on the, the, the lightest possible LUT and then just boost the saturation a little bit. And, you know, I, I never kind of thought of it as a desaturated look, but I think like, you know, for sure, I understand, like I tend to grade more towards like a flat profile. Like it's not, there's there's not as much contrast. Uh, and I, I've personally liked seeing like the extra detail in the shadows and like, I hate things being blown out. Like I just want there to be like complexity in the picture, but I think it does come at the cost of like, you know, maybe it, feeling a little like unpolished. I remember noticing it a while ago and being like, well, you know what you're doing enough that this is an intentional choice. Like I know that you could make it look less loggy. I mean, making stuff super saturated. Like I usually oversaturate my footage. Um, I want to like look at some of your videos now for reference. Like have you ever used like, have you ever used these cards? <laughs> no. Like a white balancing card? Okay. You do use those? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. No! It's fine to stylize stuff. I mean, tons of films are like, don't look like the real world. Like you generally want your whites to look white. <laughs> uh, unless you're shooting like a, a film set in Mexico and then you want everything yellow. You boys like Mexico! Yeah! I mean, most other... Uh, YouTube channels are like saturating stuff. Like it's like a cartoon. So it's it's actually kind of cool to be less uh, saturated. I think the key thing is consistency is what I'm hearing from you is like have a method to your results a little bit. Your stuff is consistent. It is consistently desaturated. If I see your footage versus um, someone else's, I could, um, without you in shot, I would know that it's very likely yours because of that um, choice. I'm looking at some of your YouTube videos right now, actually. The the brutalism of Montreal. Do you put like this sort of thought into how you grade your footage? No, I don't. I just apply kind of like general principles. I use the whole spectrum so that it's as kind of like 
contrasty as possible without clipping. Um, I put a lot more effort into the aesthetics of my motion graphics. I'm always unhappy with my color grading though. Kind of try not to think about it too much. I find the more I try to correct the colors uh, in, in, in a video that I'm doing, the worse it looks. Like the more like hardcore thinking I put into it, the more I kind of fuck it up from the original. What was the kind of like first thing that you were like, oh, my old videos suck because I hadn't figured this thing oh, out oh. yet. Sound is probably the biggest, like like I think the biggest jump you can make from like shitty to better in video, you know, in terms of video production. Like switching from the camera's mic to a lavalier mic, the quality difference is just enormous. I think like from a color correction perspective, I, when I discovered like the flat profile, the cinematic profile on my Canon camera at the time, to me, that was a big jump for me. Like I actually recall like really enjoying that. What was the most recent Eureka? Oh man, <laughs> I should have done this. Okay, this is one thing that I uh, like, <laughs> it's like the dumbest trick ever. And I don't know if any, anyone like would universally agree with it, but I find um, when you're making any sort of graphics or animations, reducing the frame rate to about 15 frames a second or like anytime like you make an animation that's 30 frames a second it's too fluid and any little mistake you make is just like augmented people are like just like it doesn't move right but you put lower that frame rate to 15 a second and all of a sudden all these like weird movements that you might have edited in just kind of like it, it just it looks jaggedy normally i'm glad you've uh, discovered that one I mean, that's a, uh, yeah. I think what's going on there is we're, our eyes have been trained to look at traditional cell animation, which does operate at a low frame rate. I think that may be what's, what's happening, but I know what you're talking about. There's also the, uh, um, it's, I don't know about you, but I, I, when I watch Vox videos, I'm like, uh, rewind that. And what do they do there? Like I'm always dissecting their motion graphics. And one thing they do is they have like kinetic backgrounds that do um, incredibly slow frame rate animations between things. So it'll be like oh. one frame per second. So maybe there's like a document on screen which is like being highlighted by, by their like highlighter tool. And then the background is like- Like shifting ever so slightly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always find, I don't know about you, but whenever I see that, and I'm like, oh, that looks good. I'm always like, does it look good in a like way that will date this video immediately? Like, oh yeah, that was the thing back then. I think it, you, you run the risk of dating a video more in the writing than you do in the visual. I think they age much more gracefully than the writing does. That Iraq today is actively using its considerable intelligence capabilities to hide its illicit activities. If there were urban planning YouTube channels in the 90s and 2000s, it would have been all about like, you know, we had big bad highways go through all these old neighborhoods and now like we know we gotta like, you know, protect character and we gotta, you know, consult with the community. And I'm fully convinced that like now we're getting into a place where it's like, oh, like the, the public engagement that we really embraced after the highway planning of the 60s and 70s. It's like, it's like kind of created its own sort of shitty impacts in like nimbyism and like incredible uh, like- A certain select group of like engaged citizens who um, will go along to the meeting and prevent anything from happening. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's like the next sort of planning sin that we have to undo in the future is like this well-intentioned thing like highways were that like really kind of shot ourselves in the foot when it comes to like 
things like housing and like actual like the evolution of a city and uh, and like this whole like oh uh, like okay sorry we need to wrap this up Paige. <laughs> so i'm coming to vancouver in uh oh my god in september so um, we can do one of these in person uh, yeah i was thinking of having like an event or something like that uh follow on patreon uh, I'll post it on there and we'll meet up uh, for a couple of hours and have a drink and, uh, you know, you can talk to us in, in person. That would, yeah. You will need to give me a dollar per video uh, if you want that. So, you know. People, anybody watching this, please pay Paige money. He he just had a very arduous contract with the CBC and he needs it. I'm sorry, should I not say that? He hates working for State Broadcaster. <laughs> they made me change my dick joke to a pelvis joke, Ute. <laughs> How dare they? Okay, I love that idea, Paige. When you're in town, like, let's, let's do it. We'll assemble some sort of crew together, meet up at a pub. Get to drink that uh, Fat Tug um, IPA that I... I like so much. I'm more of a four winds guy myself. I'll be there for a week. I'd like to do a video about Vancouver. So these videos, um, we stream them <laughs> when my computer's working uh, live. So you can kind of watch the what's and all experience uh, if you are on Patreon. Um, and you can uh, type questions into the chat while we do the stream and then um, we'll answer them at the end of, of the stream. So if you wanna do something that really helps a lot, uh, Jumping on Patreon, we, I don't I don't charge per like per month. I only charge when a video is made. So like you're only you're paying for what you get. <laughs> you will actually get like an hour of content um, if it's a podcast or whatever, fifteen minutes of content if it's a regular video. So yeah, uh, jump on there. And if you are a Patreon person who's from Vancouver, I'd love to know what story to do. I might pitch some ideas too. <laughs> Here's the steam clock. I want you to shit on that steam clock. That and the totem poles. It's like they're, they're all lies. <laughs>